portion of scripture that we would read together is the 48th Psalm. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in the mountain of his holiness. Those of you who were at the meeting this morning, there's just one or two here, may remember that we had another psalm of the sons of Korah, and again it stressed the city. It brought before our minds Babylon and Tyre and other great cities of the earth, where they were boasting and say, this man was born there. And then it turns to Zion and says, but when the Lord reckons up, he'll say that this man was born there. And here we have another psalm by these same writers. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation. <coughs> the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them, and pain as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. See, love. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is the praise, thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that ye may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. The strange mixture of thoughts in that psalm, but there's a bubbling over enthusiasm for the position which this city will have in the outworking of God's purposes. And that will come up before us again presently when we're looking at the passage in the prophecy of Isaiah. This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book and is number 11 of the series on the prophecy of Isaiah. The, passion, the section before us is from chapter 53, which we were looking at, or 52 strictly speaking, last time, 53, right on to chapter 56. But we should not be able to take all those passages before us except in the largest analysis. The attempt has been made to cram it into four lines, as you see on the chart. At the beginning we have, He bare our sin, and he poured out his soul unto death. And balancing that, he will abundantly pardon, and you can delight your soul in fatness. There's a contrast there, isn't there? He bare the sin, you receive the pardon. He poured out his soul unto death. You can delight your soul in fatness as a consequence. The cross was his. The crown and the glory are his gifts to us. 
And then we have an emphasis upon restoration in the 54th chapter. And there's a word that may have a deeper meaning yet as history unfolds itself in the last verse of chapter 54. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Well, that would be a comforting word in the days when they used bows and arrows. Or when they developed the crossbow. Or when they started using gunpowder and nearly blowing themselves to bits instead of an enemy. But today when we think of the the science that's put into making weapons of destruction, it's making men's hearts fail for fear in looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. And here embedded in the book is a word, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. I think although that has particular reference to this people and their exceeding danger, it can be, I I think, legitimately translated again into spiritual terms, for we have a complete armour of God, and if you were to examine the shield that God has given you once now and again, you would find a little inscription on that shield. It's got a guarantee with it. Guarantee to quench all the incendiaries of the wicked one. That's fine, isn't it? So God has got uh, got this preparation for his people, whether on earth or whether in heaven. And then we have the uh, final of this fourfold section, the gathering of the people, and again it says that the word shall prosper. I think you'll find in the chapter 55, where it says, verse 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. So, very much as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, so, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. So, we've got this emphasis upon prospering. It's also embedded in in the 53rd chapter, when thou shalt, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It's good to see there is a spiritual prosperity that is guaranteed in God's good time. That helps out in the days of shortness and adversity, as it's intended to be in the scriptures. Well now, it so happens occasionally in our meetings that without the slightest preparation and attempt, a subject that we had in the Sunday morning is almost preparatory for the Sunday afternoon. I'm sure if I try to arrange it, it would never fit. Now this morning, we were looking at Philippians chapter 1, and we got to the point when he says about our conversation, and standing fast, and in one mind. And then in chapter 3, he says, our conversation, and stand fast, in one mind. Now you say, what's this? Now the second time, the word that he uses for conversation, is the word which involves the word polity. Politics. Polis. It's the word citizenship. Emphasizing the fact that they were citizens. And do you realize that the gold in front of each of the three callings that divide the scriptures up between them ends in a city? You have the earthly calling and its goal is this city that we just read about in the Psalms, the Jerusalem on the earth, which is yet to be 
a center from which will radiate to the ends of the earth light and truth, that the nations are going to come under an obligation to go up to that city three times a year and there's going to be drastic treatment of those who refuse. So there's going to be a literal city that will have the impress of God upon it. Jerusalem has had a check of history and many a time it's been denounced. In fact, this prophet Isaiah in the first chapter, he calls Jerusalem practically Sodom and Gomorrah by its relationship to God and its evil. But it's going to be restored. And then we have the high calling of the, the millennium. There's the earth, going to be like a paradise. And there's going to be the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, that is a, a distinct calling, but it's a city. It's called a city. And then when you come to the epistle to the Ephesians, they were told to remember that they were aliens from the citizenship of Israel. I'm saying what the word commonwealth really is. They were aliens from that citizenship. But it goes on in the same chapter to say they're fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God. And so you see, there's an emphasis on the word city. And again, it's very unwise to ignore your enemy. You must never underestimate the wisdom or the power of an enemy, especially the one that we've got in the book. And the first city that we come across is built by Cain, and the second city, as far as my memory serves me, is the beginning of Babylon. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. He built a city. So we'll give credit to the evil one that he knew that a city was a part of the scheme and from that city would radiate not merely light and truth but darkness and despair as it has all over the earth. And in the book of the Revelation we get two cities. In fact, I think I've told you that I've called the book of the Revelation among other titles for the tale of two cities. Not that Dickens wrote it and would have thought of it. But you get that great city which rules over the kings of the earth Great Babylon which comes into line of, into the uh, mind of God with regard to its day of judgment. And then that other city which is so wonderfully described by John in the closing chapters. And this morning I lifted out from the scriptures the words of the apostle when he said he was a citizen of no mean city. And I suggested that if you were worried about your way of life and how to comport yourself and what Christian witness is, just put it this way. If you're a citizen of a no-mean city, well, don't you be a mean citizen and you won't be very far away from the truth. But whatever you do, don't make a list of rules for your fellows or for yourself and wander about reading those. Just see that your manner of life harmonizes as far as it's humanly possible by the grace of God with the city to which you're attached. And I think you won't go very, very far wrong. Well, now we must leave that and come back to the, the prophecy of Isaiah and concentrate our attention for a time on this other section, which is occupying chapter 54. Chapter 54. You will see that there is a call to sing. And if you run your eye down to the corresponding section at the end, there's uh, a reference to the fact that this one who is called to sing, who is there barren, having no children, is now called, again called an afflicted one. And then in the second case, there's a reference to, to the tent, the tabernacle, the curtains, and the cords. And at the end of the same section, you have lay thy stones in fair colours, thy foundations and thy windows. So it starts 
as Israel's history starts, with a tent and a tabernacle, pilgrims, and it ends with a city. And you'll find that turning the page to anticipate a little, when you get further on in this prophecy of Isaiah, the very new heavens and the new earth are linked with the city, as they are in the book of the Revelation. That is chapter 65. It says, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not come, shall not to be remembered, nor come into mind. But, I'm not turning your attention away from the new heavens and the new earth for a moment, but, be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So we've got the similar words used in the book of the Revelation in connection with a new heaven and a new earth. The city is there. A city on earth, a city in the heavens, and a citizenship where Christ is at the right hand of God. Well, then we get further down in the middle of this section. The relationship of God to this people was a bridal or a marriage relationship. And that comes out many, many times in the scriptures. A woman forsaken. And then, at the other end of that, a covenant of peace is made. The covenant of peace, uh, meaning to say that the widowhood and the divorced position or whatever figures are used are now finished and restoration has eventually taken place. You may look at that word in the chart under the letter E or F, a freshet of wrath. Um, the word is rather a difficult word possibly to put into, um, into English, but in the um, chapter 54, where he speaks about the days of Noah, um, in verse 8, in a little wrath I hid my face from thee, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. Then as the days of Noah, it looks as though the word indicates I sent a terrific flood on the earth in the days of Noah. The way I've dealt with you can be described rather as a freshet, a comparatively small stream in relation to it. But I will remember this, that I also said at the end of the flood I would never again bring that upon the earth and he says never again will I do it to you Israel. There's that sort of feeling in it. And so on. Well now we'll look at the passage as it stands and get what lessons we may from it as time will permit. Chapter 54 uh, One other thing perhaps might be worthwhile saying here. Uh, some readers are a little bit puzzled because you read say a certain prophecy of Isaiah then he gives a glowing statement about the glory that's coming. Then the next chapter he's calling them all the names you can think of because of their wickedness and their departure. And you say, oh, I can't make quite a consistent story of this. Well, do you remember that we are told, and you might as well just freshen your memory, in the first, in the first verse of chapter 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Isaiah, Jotam, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Well, that is at least 61 years. In those days of the kings. It's like opening a book and reading 
the vision of some particular poet in the days of Victoria and Albert and George and Elizabeth. You see, it's covering a whole period. And this book wasn't written or it didn't wait until the 61 years and then send it to a printer and have it printed. These were actually spoken prophecies and they're recorded now in the book for all time. So that every now and again he had to denounce these people and then give them words of encouragement. If you look uh, uh, to see the, the way in which the very first chapters take this line, it may help you. Chapter 1. The Lord complains there that he says, I have nourished and brought up children and have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. And he goes so far as to say they're like, verse 9, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and calls them, verse 10, rulers of Sodom. What a position to be in. Yet if you look at the second chapter, it's verse 2, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. Oh, there's this, you see, there's blessing. Then after you're done with that, you've got another description of these people which is just as vile and wicked as before. So that I say, remember, that he's had to stand up during a period of 60 years and continually bring these people up against these, these things, the, warning them of their sins, and giving them the consolation of God's grace if they'll only turn to him. And so we've got it here. Now there's a call after the great chapter 53 with its work of Christ on their account. Sing, O barren, that thou didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. This is one of those wonderful statements which you find written all over the Old Testament with regard to the Lord's relationship to Israel. He says that from, from one point of view, if they conformed to his will and followed his, with his word, they would be a kingdom of priests, a peculiar treasure above all nations of the earth. And then he also said in other parts that his relationship to them was a marriage relationship. In fact, is I am married unto you. And their present position is as a woman who has been, uh, in a measure, divorced and kept apart. Now, we want to read about that, not from our present law courts and its divorce processes, but from that which obtained in Israel. So, for the moment, I'm going to turn just a little further on and look at the prophet Hosea. One of the minor prophets, you remember. And in the third chapter, we have these words. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets after Daniel. Chapter 3. Then said the Lord unto me. This is the prophet being addressed by God. And do remember that a prophet in these days had no sinecure of a job. They didn't really have to speak words, but some of them had to do some extraordinary things. One of them had to lie on his side and know how many days to demonstrate something. And all that, well, this man's family life is being intruded into by God. He's told, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of a friend, yet an adulteress, 
Fancy telling about anybody who was a prophet of the Lord to do such a thing. According to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, you see. This Hosea was going to enter in a little bit in his own private life. What God says has happened in connection with this great relationship of this people and myself. So I bought her to me for a fifteen pieces of silver and for an over of barley and a half over of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Now apparently this was a part of the law, that when a woman was taken in that position, before ever she could be re- restored again, there was a period of segregation, a waiting period. Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. And what Hosea had to say to this woman, God said to Israel. He never altered his relationship with them. He never turned and said, I will take another nation in the place of Israel. No, they were divorced. But he says, I'll bring them back in God in my own time. For the explanation follows. The children of Israel shall abide many days. See, thou shalt abide for me many days. That's where Israel is to this day. They're in segregated. They're waiting. They don't belong to anyone else. They've never entered into covenant relationship with anyone else. They're just waiting. They shall abide many days without a king. Who is king of Israel today? Unfortunately, when a war breaks out in this country, some of the people of Israel are are made to be soldiers on one side and some on the other. But no one king rules them. Never has. And without a prince, without a sacrifice, and without an image, They have no sacrifice, but they've got no idolatry. That's been taken from them. And without an ephod, they have no priest. And without cherubim, that largely may have reference to their genealogies. That's their state. Just negative. Neither sacrifice, nor priest, nor king, nor genealogy, or the other side, idolatry, just waiting. Just waiting. But there is a term to that waiting. Afterward, afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. We're going to read about David presently in Isaiah. And there are indications that it means literally David the king that we know who is to be raised from the dead to be the viceroy of Christ upon the earth. We'll see that presently. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord of his goodness in the latter day. So there it is. God's long-suffering waiting, and eventually bringing them back. You know, he raises the question in Jeremiah, chapter 3. He puts it to them like this. He says, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? And then he leaves it. No answer to it, but you can guess that the answer implied is or not very likely. But this is the difference in the way of God. He thinks of these people, he, he remembers his covenant with them, and ultimately he brings them back to himself. And we are to- going to be told they're not going to be brought back merely as a restored, divorced woman, but like a young man marrying a virgin. So shall that restoration be. What a love God has for these people. And if that is the case, what a love he must have for most of us. For while we are saying what a terrible people Israel must be, 
I, I suppose if we judge, we are judged by the words of our own mouth, or we do much the same thing that they do. They, what they went through is written in the Old Testament scriptures as examples for us that we may avoid some of the things that they did, so we're all much of a muchness in that sense. Uh, so we've got to this point, not very far, have we? Then in verse 2, enlarge the place of thy tent. And um, my my papyrus here is so broken I can't read the passage. And what does it stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation? Spear not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. Here is the erection called upon again for this tabernacle, this tent, these curtains. And uh, then he speaks about their seed shall inherit the Gentiles. That again is a point that runs through these prophecies. The um, riches of the Gentiles should be brought to them. And we are told presently that the Gentiles will say, or will be their plowmen, but the Gentiles will look upon them and say, but these are the ministers of our God. So the tables are going to be turned at long last. And uh, the riches of the Gentiles shall be there for their use and possession. Thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. With regard to the emphasis upon marriage, I think we might include uh, a reference that will have to come before us again, but it will help to to, uh, fix it in our minds. Chapter 61. Chapter 61, verse 10. You see, in verse 9 there again it says, Their seed shall be known among the Gentiles. And looking back a little bit earlier, at the end of verse 8, there's an everlasting covenant. All those things are before us already in chapter 54 and 55. There's a repeating, not a a vain repetition. Then verse, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he hath covered me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. There's a reference there to a bridal ceremony. And then in chapter 62, verse 4, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah. Now Hephzibah was the name of the queen, the wife of Hezekiah. Uh, but this is because of the meaning of the word Hephzibah. My delight is in her, and thy land shall be called Beulah, that is, married. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. So you've got those emphatic words with regard to the restoration of these people under the figure of a marriage. In the 54th chapter, verse 11, when you get a bit further down the story, the um, subject is resumed. Instead of being barren, they're afflicted and tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay thy foundations with fair colours No, what is it? Thy stones with fair colours and thy foundations with sapphires. My Bible's getting the worse for wear in that little bit, so if I've 
alters it, it's not been on purpose. So here, here we are now, not dealing with a tent. We are dealing with a temple. And the emphasis upon the coloured stones makes you think of the city. And here we have the goal. The tent has given place to the temple. The wandering in the wilderness has given place to the city. I will lay thy stones with fair colours and thy foundations with sapphires. There has been an attempt on the part of one friend to say that this is the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, there's very much like it, of course, the precious stones, but there's specifications here that I think we do well to ponder. I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and thy borders of pleasant stones. Now, thy gates of carbuncles. Now, the New Jerusalem, our attention is specifically drawn to the fact that the gates were every single one of them a pearl. Well, now, if we are going to say, well, a pearl and a carbuncle is all much the same, you try it on with one of the jewellers in this district and you'll find that you make a mistake, won't you? You see, because there's this emphasis upon the stones and the colours, it doesn't make them the same thing. There's the city on the earth, a jewel of a city, and the city in the heavens. And so, beautiful for situation is Mount Zion, the joy of the whole earth. That's Mount Zion. That's on the earth. Just the same, the city of our God also will be lovely beyond dreams. And then, um, let's notice a few references to the emphasis upon uh, the forsaking of this people. <coughs> I'll come back to chapter 54, and it says in verse 4, Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and thou shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. The word widowhood is rather a wide term because in the ordinary way it refers to a death. But in this case, it was just as good as that, for to live all those centuries separated from God was to live like a widow. For thy maker is thy husband. That again is the way in which the relationship of God to this people is stressed over and over again. And when you get to the heavenly Jerusalem, there's a marriage there. When you have the heavenly Jerusalem described in the book of the Revelation, it's associated with the marriage of the Lamb is come and a wife has made herself ready. And so we have both in the heavens itself and on the earth this relationship. I can't help but believe that in spite of the fact that so many marriages seem to go astray and they can be scoffed at or they can be ridiculed or they can be spoiled, that God intended at the beginning when he brought Eve to Adam to represent not only the glory that was to be the people of Israel and the glory that was to be the overcomers in their relationship as bride to the bridegroom, uh, but I think he intended that every one of us, if we only could enter into the marriage relationship in the same spirit, it would be a very blessed thing on earth. I always remember when I was speaking about something on this about um, 50 years ago, <laughs> uh, an elderly man whose marriage had been a sore business. He said, how could this young man talking? He doesn't know. Well, after 50 years, I say the same thing, friend. And I say, it's a good thing to think that can be picked out here and there 
the ones and the twos, whose marriage has not been merely convenient, or not been one of those things that they uh, live on edge, but it can be a little poor, perhaps, but a blessed anticipation of the day that's coming for many of God's people, this relationship which God has established. So he says, Thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth should be called. What type was this husband's God? And if a wife is associated with her husband in his titles and his dignity, he is this nation, the Creator, the Lord of the whole earth, the Holy One of Israel. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith the Lord. You notice that this, in chapter 6, verse 12, or when it speaks about um, the restoration after a period, let's look at chapter 6, verse 12 for a moment. And the Lord hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. That's where it starts, this forsaking, because they had turned their back on God. And now at last, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, and the tables are turned, and we find them restored. Then another feature which I think is useful for us, oh, when it says, uh, when thou wast refused, is a word that is used in the day when the Lord said to Samuel, he said, look Samuel, they haven't refused you. They've rejected me. This word, you see, this is what Israel did. To, just as Israel or Saul turned away from God, so he said, you have been treated in the same way, but that's being cancelled out. Then it says, for a small moment have I forsaken thee. A small moment. Uh, Twenty-six. Isaiah 26, verse 20. There may be just a word there that will fit this. 26, 20. Come, my people, enter in thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee, hide thee as it were for the little moment, until the indignation be over past. A little moment. And yet, we have to remember that at least from the days when Christ visited them as their Messiah and they knew not the day of their visitation until the present time, it's 1900 years when they've been separated like Hosea said they would be without a king and without a prince and without a priest and without a sacrifice. And yet God says, for a little moment, a little moment. And of course that bears upon us too. You remember how the Apostle said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. And that man who said that had had a tremendous amount of affliction, hadn't he? He said, I die daily, beaten in synagogues and scourged by Romans and shipwrecks and fastings and whatnot. Yet, he said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, but there's just one provision, isn't there? While we look not at the things which are seen. It all depends upon the direction of your look. If you see him that is invisible, you'll endure. If you look around you and see all the things going to pieces, you'll collapse. And so we have here a little statement here, that from God's point of view, it's for a little moment. From Israel's point of view, a long drawn out agony of centuries. So it depends on the point of view to a large extent. And the more we get God's point of view, the more we shall be able to endure. In a little wrath, oh, it says, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. So the gathering of Israel back again is when the great mercies begin. Now there are some of God's people, and they're very fine Christian people, I know a few, they believe the word of God to be true, they believe the personal work of Christ, his great atoning work, but they've come to the conclusion that the people of Israel, as a people, have no future, that it's all transferred spiritually to the church. And if a Jew believes today, well, he believes the same as a Gentile, and that's the end of it. How they can take those passages of Scripture where God calls, he says, if these things can pass, heaven and earth, then will I forget this people. Or the words that we get in Romans the 11th chapter, when it faces the fact that this very people are enemies because of the gospel, but beloved because of the fathers for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. It doesn't seem to me possible that God can use those words and then make an oath and swear to Abraham and then it suddenly turns out to be a church like you and I can belong to instead of the working out of God's purpose. That doesn't seem to be resident here. So, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. What a gathering that will be, won't it? In a little wrath, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. Look how God's belittling it. And yet, of course, it was terrible. But with everlasting kindness, and you see, this has to do with the everlasting covenant that is going to be mentioned in the context. With everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, said the Lord thy Redeemer. So he's the Lord who is their creator. He's their maker. And he is their Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto thee. For as I have sworn, he doesn't mean to say I'm going to send a deluge upon you, but I'm going to do what I said with regard to the days of Noah. I sent that flood and blotted out those people. But I also took an oath. I swore that never again would I destroy, destroy the earth with waters like in the days of the flood. So have I sworn that I will not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Now notice the word kindness. It's a word that sometimes we let slip. When we think about the future, it's dazzling glory, isn't it? And it's right to think of it, it's beyond our estimation. I have not seen or he have heard, neither has it into the heart of men the things that God hath prepared. 
But right in the very passage in Ephesians, when we're looking to that glorious day, it says, I think perhaps we'll get it so that I don't uh, misquote it, Ephesians chapter 2, Um, verse um, 6 and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus when you think of those words sitting together where Christ sits at the highest pinnacle in heavenly places oh what dazzling glory it brings before your mind that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his what's the last word? kindness Kindness, exceeding riches, yes. Grace beyond dreams, yes. But kindness. Well, I'm glad of that because, you know, if you were invited to go to some great nobility in their marvellous palace with all their retainers and the great flights of stairs and people announcing your name and you wondered if your tie was on right and if your hair was part in the middle and all that. You see, oh, what a business it is. But look, we're going into the palace of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and waiting for us is not merely glory beyond dreams, but kindness. He's going to show his kindness to all these principalities and powers through us. Lovely, isn't it? So, however dazzling the beauty, we're going home. And our Father is there. And kindness is his last word in that section. So he says, For the mountains should depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness should not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. We'll have to look at that word covenant when we get to it presently. You will find in the first half of Isaiah, it comes quite a number of times which my covenant they break. And when we get into the second half of Isaiah, it's the establishing of an everlasting covenant that shall never be broken. That makes all the difference. And then again it says, coming a little bit further down, verse 13, All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. I want just to have a glimpse at the first few verses of chapter 55 because we've got so much in front of us and I dare not make these uh, studies last out too long. In chapter 55 we get the call. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye by and eat. You remember it says in an earlier chapter, You've sold yourself, you've spent your strength for naught, you've sold yourself without money, you'll be redeemed without price. Come ye by and eat, ye come by wine and milk, without money and without price. It's interesting, of course, to remember that in the days when Isaiah wrote, and later after that, water was actually sold in the streets of Jerusalem. A man would have a goatskin bag on his back, and he would go through the streets of the city, he'd say, who buy the gift of God? And he, there was no sort of feeling of contradiction because it was called the gift of God. But he was selling it. And our Saviour said to the woman at the well, if thou knewest the gift of God, she knew that was water. He was the gift of God. So it says here, you shall buy wine and milk, come ye to the waters. But when you get to the waters, 
You could buy wider milk. That's even going deeper and fuller. Without money and without price. And then he says to them, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labour for that which satisfies not satisfy. You lift that word out and see how it's used. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. As for me, I shall uh, see thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied. And you are spending your strength and your labour on that which satisfies not. Hearken diligently unto me and eat that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. As we've said, he poured out his soul unto death to open these doors of wonderful provision. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. Now the sure mercies of David are picked up by the apostles in the Acts of the Apostles and declared to be connected with resurrection. When Christ was raised from the dead that was fulfilling the sure mercies of David. So you see these blessings that Israel are to enjoy are not going to be just in the flesh as we understand it, but they will now have relationship to that which is to do with the risen life. And there I think we'll leave it for the time being. We must pick up our study and thread our way through the remaining chapters in the next few opportunities we have, and then we shall have to say, instead of saying, well, that's the end of Isaiah, we shall all say, well, that's just the beginning. Now you go back yourselves and you go through chapter after chapter, verse after verse, and there's no plumbing these depths or scaling these heights. And the glory of it is that they set forth something of the work of our Saviour that we also acknowledge. We are not Israel, we're not in the same covenant relationship, there's no marriage relationship between the Lord and ourselves, but just as surely as he's the head of the body of the church, just as surely there is a citizenship in connection with this calling, and just as surely there are these mercies that are unbreakable and at long last will be focused on that holy, lovely word, kindness. Let us take these thoughts with us as we go on our homeward journey, and may they be a comfort to us as they were intended to be a comfort to this people in the days when Isaiah uttered them and as we are reading them at this present moment.